G'day, welcome to Age Abuse and Justice, where each episode I summarise an elder abuse case to demonstrate what elder abuse looks like and how the law deals with it. Age Abuse and Justice started as short videos published on YouTube. I did 15 cases in video format, but it took much longer to record and edit, so gradually I eased out of videos to focus on the podcast. It also allowed me to do cases in more detail. I'm now adding the audio from those video recordings to be available on the podcast channel as well. Please excuse the bad audio, these are made from when I was first learning how to use this equipment so it gets pretty dicey. So this is one of those video recordings. The videos are still available on YouTube if you'd like to check them out. You can search for Age Abuse and Justice or you could look on the New South Wales Legal Aid podcast channel. But I'll also include the links for this case in the notes below. So on to the case. In December 2007, Ian Anderson died, and he left behind his wife Roma and his two sons Malcolm and John. Just before her husband's death, Roma saw her solicitor Miss Parson and organised a will. Roma's will appointed her son John and his wife Deborah to be her executors and she left her whole estate to be divided equally between her two sons, Malcolm and John. At the time of doing the will, Miss Parsons didn't have any concerns about Roma's capacity to understand what she was doing. But within a month, she received another phone call from Roma, this time with new instructions for a will. Now, it's not uncommon for someone to change their mind about what they want to have in their will. But what concerned Miss Parson was that Roma didn't really seem to remember having only done her will recently. John also had concerns about his mother's capacity. He believed that her mental health had been deteriorating ever since her husband's death. Miss Parson recommended that Roma get a medical assessment to confirm whether or not she had capacity to do a new will. Now, between February and September 2008, Roma saw her doctor several times, which resulted in four statements of medical capacity over that time. And all of those assessments generally said that Roma did have capacity. From the start of 2008, Roma had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. She weighed 36 kilos and she was completely reliant on her son Malcolm for full-time care. Malcolm lived with her and looked after her as her principal carer. Malcolm and his brother John didn't really get along, but John would call his mother every day and every Friday John and Deborah would visit Roma when Malcolm was out of the house. On the 18th of September 2008, Roma and another man attended Miss Parsons' office and they requested the original copy of her will and they took it away with them. Because by this time Miss Parson had concerns about Roma's capacity, she believed that the power of attorney had been activated. And Roma's power of attorney appointed John to make financial decisions for her if she didn't have the capacity to do so. Powers of attorney also extend to your assets and property, which includes your documents, which includes your will. So Miss Parson called John just to let him know that Roma had taken her original will. Later that afternoon, Miss Parson got a phone call from Malcolm. He told her that his mother wasn't happy that she had gone behind her back and told John what had happened. Miss Parson asked to speak to Roma on the phone, and she did speak to Roma for a little while, but she could hear Malcolm in the background telling her what to say. 
The very next day Malcolm and Rhoma attended a different solicitor's office. They went to see Mr Healy and gave instructions for a new will to be drafted. In the new will, um, everything would still be divided equally between John and Malcolm, but this time both John and Malcolm would be appointed as the executors. And at the same time, they also gave instructions that Roma was transferring her house, her principal asset, to her son Malcolm for no money. The effect of this is would be that Roma would no longer own the house anymore. It would belong outright to Malcolm. And then on Roma's death, whatever else was in her estate would be divided equally between John and Malcolm, but the house wouldn't be a part of that. During this appointment, Mr Healy tried to get instructions directly from Roma alone, um, but she wouldn't give instructions to him. She basically said, I want Malcolm to have the house. So all of the instructions for redoing the will and for preparing the transfer were given by a Malcolm. Mr Healy also had concerns about Roma's capacity, so he recommended that she see a doctor to get a certificate of capacity, um, at which point they handed over two of the ones she'd only recently had. And as I said before, those statements did say that Roma had capacity. So Mr Healy prepared the will, he, would pre he prepared a new power of attorney, and he also prepared the transfer form. Now, the transfer form said that Roma was going to transfer her house to Malcolm, and in the consideration where you'd normally put how much it's being transferred for, it said natural love and affection. Mr Healy witnessed Roma's signature to the will and to the transfer, but not the power of attorney. He explained that he did not believe she had capacity to sign the power of attorney. This might sound confusing, but when a solicitor witnesses a power of attorney, they sign the form and it says, I confirm that this person understands the document they are signing and they understand the effects of the document. So they understand the power they're giving to the power of attorney they understand what the attorney can do and they understand um, what assets they have and the extent of power the attorney will have to deal with those assets. Did you get in there, did you? You just go in there. Okay. In legal practice, it's generally considered that you need more capacity to do a power of attorney than you need to do a will. For will, it can suffice that the person understands exactly who they want to leave all of their property to. Roma died in December 2009, and it was her son John who started legal proceedings to try to get the property back. The argument in court was firstly that Roma didn't have capacity at the time she did the transfer, and secondly, if she did have capacity, that Malcolm used undue influence over her to get her to do the transfer. The, the medical reports and statements were a big part of the court case because they were evidence of Roma's capacity at the time of doing the transfer. However, the court found that not much weight could be put on those medical statements because the four statements that said that Roma had capacity were basically along the lines of one sentence, just, I confirm that Roma has capacity, and that doesn't suffice. What you need is a clear record showing I am a doctor, I've seen Roma for so-and-so number of years, she has this medical condition which affects her capacity in this way, she's receiving this medication, this medication might have this effect on her capacity, 
And then you might also have like a capacity assessment in there. So they might say, um, I did a mini mental examination and she scored this amount. And at the end of that report, which should be pretty lengthy, the doctor then says, in my professional opinion, taking into account all of the above, I confirm that the person has capacity or I do not believe the person has capacity. Even more than that, you also need evidence that the doctor understands the transaction that the client needs capacity for. So in this case, you'd need the doctor to specifically identify that Roma has capacity to do a will and that she understands what a will is, or that um, she has capacity to transfer her property for no money and that she understands the effect of that is that she will no longer have that asset anymore. All of that was lacking in this case. The medical records were very scarce, scarce. The medical records were very scarce and the certificates of capacity were pretty much just a sentence. It had none of that information that's needed. So the court ultimately said that they couldn't be relied upon to confirm that she had capacity. That being said, the court also said that there wasn't sufficient evidence to prove that she didn't have capacity at the time of the transfer. So they couldn't make that ruling and John's first argument failed. Then turn to the second argument, which that was that Malcolm used undue influence over Roma to get her to transfer the property. It was argued that at the time of the transfer, Roma was frail, she was sick, and she was dependent on Malcolm for all of her care. And that this level of dependency would have made it difficult for her to say no to him when he requested the transfer of the property. It was noted that when the instructions were given to the solicitor, he was present in all but one appointment and he was the one giving the instructions. So it was Malcolm's idea, it wasn't hers and it wasn't to her benefit. Another thing taken into consideration was that at the time of transfer, Roma took no other steps to protect herself. So she's transferring her property for no money and she's got no guarantee that she can live there for the rest of her life. Even if that's what Malcolm's promised her, there's no um, fallback if he doesn't keep his word. There's not even a registered right to reside there for the rest of her life. She's basically got no guarantee. The court found that it couldn't be said that Roma received independent legal advice because Malcolm was present, he was the one giving instructions, and also because the advice didn't cover other options. So it didn't raise the risk of the transfer and it didn't go into the reasons why she wanted to transfer the house to Malcolm in the first place. Ultimately, the court found that Malcolm had conducted himself in a way to dominate and influence Roma in order to gain control of her finances. So they said that he had exerted undue influence and the court ordered that the property was to return to Roma, or in this case, to Roma's estate, which um, now that the property is back in the estate, it's to be divided in accordance with the will, which would be equally between the two sons. There was a second court case to determine who would pay legal cost. So normally costs follow the event. And what that means is the party who wins doesn't have to pay their own legal fees, that the losing side pays most of them. In this case, Malcolm applied to the court requesting that John pays his own legal fees and Malcolm would pay his own legal fees. And the court found no reason why that should stand. Um, they said Malcolm, having lost the case, is required to pay John's legal fees. And the court also ordered that Malcolm having to pay the legal fees 
that this cost order could be taken out of his share of the estate. The reason why that's important is the executor has an obligation and a duty to distribute the estate in accordance with the will. If the will says it's divided equally between Malcolm and John, the executor divides it equally between Malcolm and John. And the executor doesn't automatically have this power to go, oh, Malcolm owes John about $80,000, we're just going to take it out of his share. They can't make that decision. The court can, though. So in this case, the court had that extra provision that said Malcolm's obligation could come out of his share of the estate before it's paid for him, in that way ensuring that it is paid. Two big highlights of this case is the key role that solicitors and doctors can play in identifying elder abuse, in preventing unwise and problematic transactions, and protecting the older person when they're in that abusive relationship. So you could see in the two solicitors here, Ms Parson and Mr Healy, both concerns about the capacity of Roma, um, both seeking to get independent instructions from Roma. Um, and it's, it's important to emphasise that that's a really key role of solicitors in these kind of circumstances. And the New South Wales Law Society has actually published some guidelines and recommendations for lawyers. So it recommends that you see when taking instructions for a will from an older person, that you see that person alone and get the instructions directly from them. That you confirm they understand what they're doing. And if they're doing a transaction like their transfer, you would ask the reason why because then you might be able to suggest other ways they could do it. And in this case, it might have been something as simple as if she wanted to do the transfer, still doing it, but maybe protecting her with a right to reside there for the rest of her life. More frequently, lawyers are aware that when they can't determine for themselves whether the client has capacity, that you can ask that they go to a doctor and get a professional capacity assessment. The Law Society also has draft letters to doctors explaining to doctors the extensive report that is needed because doctors don't automatically know this. So this gives the doctors guidelines as well about what kind of information is needed to confirm capacity and it also has information about the documents. So it'll say if the person needs capacity to do a will, it tells the doctor what you're looking for. Doctors also play a big role here because when they're doing those capacity assessments, they can determine whether there's any undue influence being exerted on the older person, whether the older person is confused about any aspect of the transaction, and they can also see the older person alone and make sure that the older person's not doing anything that they don't want to. So I think this is a really good case to highlight how doctors and solicitors need to work together um, to prevent elder abuse. That was my case for today. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you'll join me for my next one.